I appreciate that message very much. Uh, I don't think Tim told you where he was actually speaking from in the beginning, but it's the 29th Psalm. And I tell you that because I'd like to encourage you to go read that Psalm. It's all about how powerful that the voice of the Lord is. It breaks the cedars. It causes the calves to hind, etc. And um, his, his voice is powerful, isn't it? Indeed it is. Uh, I'd like to speak to you from the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 12, Peter says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Now, Peter did not want to be negligent. Any minister of the gospel, that should also be his thought. I do not want to be negligent in the things that I'm supposed to do. But in this particular case, Peter is emphasizing the importance of the Lord's people remembering something. He says, even though you know it and be established in this present truth. It's important for God's people to be established in the truth of God's word. To be established, to be grounded, to know the truth to the point that you can detect error when you hear that. So Peter says, I would not be negligent. Paul told Timothy, being the apostle writing to the young minister, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which is given thee by prophecy in the laying on the hands of the presbytery. Paul wanted Timothy not to be negligent. In another place he tells Timothy to stir up the gift which is given unto him. We find in various places where the Lord emphasizes the importance of us not being negligent. And this was Peter's desire here. I would not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, things he wrote in 1 Peter, things he wrote in the first part of chapter 1 here, of these things, know you know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, which means I think it's very appropriate, it's right. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, to put you, uh, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. The word stir, S-T-I-R, it means to awaken fully. It means to arouse. If you go to John chapter 6, you'll read about a storm that the disciples was in with the Lord Jesus Christ. Tim made reference to that. And you'll read where it says, uh, and the storm, uh, there arose a great storm. That word arose there comes from the same word, the word stirred us. Now, we need to stir a lot of things, don't we? You know, you put, you want to drink something, you put it in a glass, you stir it up. Uh, you know, the, uh, the cook puts stuff in a, in a bowl and then all the ingredients in the bowl and then takes and stirs it up real good to get the right texture, etc. Well, Paul here says, I want to stir you up by remembering some things. Now, you can't remember anything that you don't already know. You got to know something to remember it. He says, I know you know these things, and you're established in this very present truth. But I'm not going to be negligent, he says, uh, about this matter, because I want to put you into remembrance of these things, and I want to stir you up as long as I'm in this tabernacle. Now, Peter speaks about his body as being a tabernacle. I want you to notice, as long as I'm in this tabernacle. Now, this body I have here is referred to in the Bible as a tabernacle. I'm inside this body. When a person departs this life and you see the body lying in the casket, that's not them, that's just their body. They've departed to be with the Lord. 
Peter speaks about as long as I'm in this tabernacle. If you go to Genesis chapter 35, you'll find where Rachel, uh, the wife of Jacob, uh, she's going to die giving birth to Benjamin. And the Bible says when her soul was in departing, and in parentheses it says, for she died. So what happens when a person dies? Their soul departs. Paul uses that word quite often in his writings concerning the passing of God's people. Peter speaks about being in this tabernacle. A, a tabernacle was, is a tent primarily. A tabernacle is a picture of that which is temporary. It's a picture of weakness. And, and a tabernacle basically is unattractive. But Paul writes about this as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, If we know this earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God not made with hands. We have something of God that hands didn't make. And this tabernacle of ours will be dissolved. If we know that the earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God not made with hands. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from God. Now he's giving you a picture here. Uh, when he speaks about the house of God, he's talking about the glorified body. A body that will not be temporary, the body will be eternal. It will not be unattractive. It will be very beautiful. It will not be weakness. It will be power. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He said, this is a natural body. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. The bodies of God's children are not exchanged, but they are changed. It goes down a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. It goes down a body of weakness, it's raised a body of power. It goes down a body of corruption, it's raised a body of incorruption. It goes down a body of dishonor, it's raised in a body of glory. Same body, but a change takes place. Here we walk around in earthly tabernacles. There we will have a building of God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens above. This is temporary. This is a picture of weakness. This is unattractive. But the building of God is eternal, it's power, and it's very beautiful. So Peter uses the word tabernacle here. As long as I'm in this tabernacle, in verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Now Peter's referring to an experience you'll find in the last chapter of the Gospel of John, chapter 21. This is a chapter where the Lord Jesus Christ asked Peter this question three times. Peter, lovest thou me? Peter said, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He says, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, lovest thou me? He says, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He says, feed my lambs. He asked him the third time. Remember, Peter denied him three times. So he asked him the third time. Peter, lovest thou me more than these? He says, Lord, Thou knowest that I love thee. And he tells him again to go and feed his sheep. He then tells Peter to come and follow me. But in verse 18, he tells Peter something about his future. He says, Peter, when thou was young, he says, thou girded thyself, and thou walkest wheresoever thou wouldest. He said, but when thou shalt be old. Now he's guaranteeing Peter right here, assuring Peter that he's not going to die a young man. That's what he's assuring him. Now, 
You know, Elder Harold Hunt one time said, in his own manner and way, those who know him, he says, I missed my chance to die young. <laughs> I'm glad I missed my chance to die young. But anyway, I know I will not die young. I don't know if I'll die old or not, but I know I will not die young. And so he says, when you're young, this is the way it was. He said, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee. Now, here's a picture. Peter is going to live quite a few more years after this, okay? Now, we're reading here in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is about 35 years after what the Lord told him in John 21. But about 10 years after what Jesus told Peter in John chapter 21, we find Peter is in prison. This is recorded in Acts chapter 12. In Acts 12, we find where Herod uh, has vexed the church and he has slain James. He's one of the apostles. He's the first apostle to die. And he puts Peter in prison until the next morning. Now, most people would certainly have the expectation, he's slain James, he's put me in prison, probably the next, in the morning, I'll be next. I, I, he'll slay me. But you know what Peter's doing through the night? Peter's sleeping. Peter sleeps. Now, how can a man sleep under those circumstances? His a companion in the apostleship's been slain. Most likely, you know, he would be slain the next morning, except one thing Peter already knows. Peter knows I will not be slain the next morning because the Lord told me I was not going to die until I was old. So the Lord has guaranteed him that he's going to live to be an old man. But Peter now suspects, I believe by divine, revolu divine revelation, that his time now is short. When he's writing this, we're now looking about 35 years down the road after when the Lord spoke to him in John 21. He realized his time is short. He speaks about putting off this tabernacle. All right, now the Apostle Paul used a different language. The Apostle Paul used the word depart. We find Peter speaks about putting off this tabernacle here. He says, Moreover, I will, uh, knowing this shortly, I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Now the Apostle Paul uh, understood when you come to 2 Timothy chapter 4 that he only had a short time left. He said, the time of my offering is at hand. He said, the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. Henceforth, there's a crown of rights laid up for me, and not for me only, for all those that love his appearing. Now, if you continue reading that chapter, what did we find Paul doing? Paul asked Timothy to bring some things to him, to bring my coat because it's wintertime, and to bring the parchments in, his, in, in the books what was Paul going to do in his last days? He was still going to read and study. What was Paul going to do in his last days? He was still going to write. Uh, Paul didn't want to be cold, so he asked Timothy to bring his coat to him. All right, so here is Peter. Peter recognizes his time now is short, and he is very concerned that the Lord's people understand the Word of God and to remember it. Three times in these verses here, he speaks about remembering. If you go to the... Uh, second, third chapter over here, you'll find Peter says this, second epistle I write unto you. Now I just want to pause here to mention, when you read this, that, that means Peter is writing the same, to the same people in second Peter he was writing in first Peter. So who is he writing to in first Peter? You go back and read that. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, 
according to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. He's writing to the elect of God. So he comes to 2 Peter 3, says, This second epistle I write unto you, that I might stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. This is the fourth time he's used that word here in this very short epistle. I want to stir up your pure minds. These people had pure minds. The wicked do not have pure minds. The wicked have carnal minds. The wicked have evil minds. But Peter's not writing to the wicked, not writing to the evil, not writing to the world in general. He's writing to the elect family of God that identifies as strangers that were scattered in the various regions. Stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance, being mindful of the words of the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I want you to be mindful of the words of the prophets. I want you to be mindful of the words of us, the apostles. Peter believed in the inspired word of God. We'll see this just a little bit later, Lord willing. He wanted the Lord's people to remember some things that they already knew and were established in this present truth. And as long as he was in this tabernacle, he was not going to be negligent uh, about you know, stirring their minds up by way of remembrance. And then notice his next verse here in verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Now, Peter uses the word decease. The word decease literally means an exit, means an exodus. He said, I'm about ready to step off the stage of life. I'm about ready to experience an exodus. I'm about ready to exit out of this world. He uses the language here uh, that we find in Luke chapter 9 on the mountain of transfiguration. But the Bible speaks about the Lord's exodus. And we get to that, Lord willing, in just a moment or two. Now he says, I will endeavor that after my exodus, you will keep these things in remembrance. After I've passed away, after I've left this scene of life, I, I don't want you remembering me. I want you remembering the word of God. Okay? Now, we come down to verse 16. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We may known in you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we're eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the Apostle Peter is bringing our attention here, an event that took place in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that is referred to in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write about this event that's referred to as the Mountain of Transfiguration. Interesting here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not there. The Apostle Peter was. The Apostle Peter was on that mountain, and the Apostle Peter was present, and he's an eyewitness of what took place on that mountain that he summarizes and describes here as the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and it was full of his majesty. Now, we go and look at, look at this experience just for a moment or two this morning. We go and begin to study all three writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Once again, they were not there, but they wrote with divine inspiration, and their record is very accurate. Nothing you'll read in those three accounts will contradict what Peter says here. And then what Peter says here is going to contradict anything they said. But the emphasis here is Peter, again, was an eyewitness of what he's about to say. It's not hearsay. He's an eyewitness of it. He said, for we follow not cunningly devised fables. What he's about to tell you is not a fable. A fable is a myth. Throughout the scripture of the New Testament, we're warned over and over again by people that the Bible calls deceivers. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, For there are deceivers, deceitful workers, false apostles. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul says, We should not be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, who through the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Now that's just wasn't for the people of that day, that's for people of today. There are people out here today in the name of religion who have the desire to deceive you. They're lying in wait to deceive you, and they use cunning craftiness in doing so. Now, Peter says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. Just turn the page one time, you come to chapter 2, and the apostle Peter says, well, there were false prophets and false teachers, he says, who bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord Jesus Christ that bought them. Now, Elder Paul Williams, uh, minister, Premier Baptist minister, uh, he was at home one day, and the door, he got a knock on the door, and he went to the door, and he opened the door, and there was uh, two or three people there, and he uh, saw they had their tracks and one thing and another, you know, the people I'm talking about, and he said, I've been expecting you. And they said, what do you mean? We, we didn't make an appointment. He said, I know you didn't, but the apostle Peter told me you were coming by. Peter told me in this, this day there was going to be deceitful workers and false prophets and false teachers bringing in damnable heresy. So I've been expecting you for some time. And like Peter says, you have arrived here. The apostle John wrote about those that would be deceivers and he called them antichrist. False apostles, false prophets, damnable heresies, cunning devised fables. In 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul warns these two ministers about people just like this. He warns about taking heed to Jewish fables. He warns Titus about gainsayers. He tells Titus, speak sound words, speak that which is sound, which means healthy. It's about the word of God. They might refute or turn away the gainsayers. They give no heed to Jewish fables. And Timothy, Paul says, there are some old wise fables out here. And you don't take heed to that either. I run across people every now and then, they'll tell me something. They say, now, I know that's in the Bible. I've heard it. Oh, you heard it all right, but you didn't hear it. Uh, you didn't get it from the scripture. <laughs> You've got an old wise fable. You've got a Jewish fable. You've got endless genealogies that the apostle warns Timothy and Titus they're not to give heed to. They ran rampant among the Romans and the Greeks. They're all kind of heresies. They're all kind of fables. That's what a fable is. It's a myth. It's uh, that which is not true. And you know, you can hear something said so many different times, it's not true, all of a sudden you begin to think it is true just because you've heard it said so many times. Repetition of things that are false can make you think something is true. Well, here the Apostle Peter says, we follow not cunningly. Notice this, cunningly devised fables. Uh, these are fables that were cunningly devised by these deceivers, these false prophets, these false teachers, and these false apostles. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and the power and coming of the Lord. So we go take a look at this mountain of transfiguration experience because obviously it's very important that we study this. Or Peter wouldn't have been bringing it up over here. It wouldn't have been recorded three different times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I really like uh, the language in Luke chapter 9 in particular. 
But as we begin to see this, we find preceding them going up the mountain, the Lord said something about his kingdom. He says, there be some of you standing here this day that shall not see death until you see the kingdom of God. Remember that. Remember that. Immediately then, he goes on top of this mountain. He takes three of the 12 apostles with him. He takes Peter, he takes James, and he takes John. And appearing with the Lord Jesus Christ on this mountain is two of the most well-known Old Testament persons that you're ever going to read about. There's Moses and Elijah. And the Bible tells me in Luke chapter 9 that they were having a discussion. And they were talking about the decease of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Notice the way this is worded. They were talking about his decease, exodus, that's what the word means. Talking about his decease, his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now what are the apostles doing right now while this, might say, Bible conference is taking place? You got Moses, you got Elijah, you got the Lord Jesus Christ. They're discussing his decease, his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The apostles were asleep. The apostles had fallen asleep. You know, uh, there's just so many examples in the Bible of the weakness of human flesh, the weakness of human nature. I find them asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. The same three. The Lord takes those same three with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before he goes to Calvary. And he brought them to a certain point. And the Bible says he went a little farther. And I think about that every once in a while. How the Lord has always gone a little farther. And he's always gone far enough, hasn't he? And how far he needed to go, he went. And it's always further than we can go. A sign of our weakness. They fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. They fell asleep on the mountain of transfiguration. They were up there. The Lord took them up there not to go to sleep. When we come to the house of God, we come to worship God, not to go to sleep. <laughs> this is not a place to catch up in the sleep that you lost last night. You do that when you get home later on this afternoon. But anyway, we find he takes these three with him as he often did. Uh, and somebody said, why didn't he take the others? You would have to ask the Lord that. All I know is he did. He took these three with him to a certain, in certain situations, in certain places, when he didn't take the other, the other nine. So he takes them on top of the mountain of transfiguration. The Lord appears right between Moses and Elijah. The disciples fall asleep. But before they fell asleep, the apostle Peter made a statement. The apostle Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three what? Tabernacles. Peter's used the word tabernacle twice here in our text in the first chapter of 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Let's make three tabernacles. We'll make one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, the voice of God spake from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. This caused the apostles to have great fear, as you might think it would. He didn't bring them up there to build tabernacles. And if they're going to build a tabernacle, it had been for one. It wouldn't have been for two. It wouldn't have been for three. The Lord will not share his glory. God has spoken of in the Old Testament about God that's a jealous God. He's not going to share his glory with men. And so we find that Peter sees the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter hears the voice of his father from heaven saying, This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Remember what the Lord asked Peter in Matthew chapter 16 just prior to this? He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He said, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elias, Elijah. 
And some say you're one of the other prophets. Now, you see, the some say crowd were not correct. The some say crowd was incorrect in all four of their answers. So the Lord then speaks to the disciples specifically. He said, but whom do ye say that I am? And the apostle Peter, being the spokesman for the group of this time, says, we believe thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, on the mountain of transfiguration, the Father in heaven says he's my son. This confirms the confession of the apostle Peter. We know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because the Father said he was. So that should settle the issue, should it not? So Peter sees the Christ, sees Christ, sees Jesus, and Peter hears the voice of God speaking out of a cloud. Now, if you go back and study the Old Testament, you know that God led Israel through the wilderness with a cloud, a pillar of a cloud in the daytime, a pillar of fire at night, and God oftentimes spoke to them from that cloud. The cloud came down and covered the entrance way to the tabernacle one time where God came down and spoke to them. He spoke to them in a cloud because no man can see the face of God and live. He speaks to them out of this cloud right here. says, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And then that took care of the situation. I also notice in reading these three accounts where it said, Peter wits not to say. He didn't know what to say. So why do he say anything? <laughs> we usually get in real trouble when we say something when we don't know what to say. If we don't know what to say, then to say nothing, right? You just say nothing. And I can assure you, you'll get in a lot less trouble of saying nothing than you will saying something. I've seen conferences held in times past, not here thankfully, uh, where really didn't have anything to bring up. But somebody thought, well, we've got to bring something up. You know, we're in God, we got to bring something up, and then bring something up that shouldn't have been brought up. So here's the apostle Peter, which is not what to say, so he should have said nothing. So what does he say? Let us build three tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not so. Didn't bring you up here to build tabernacles, Peter. The voice of God spoke, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. When I consider the man Moses, what does Moses represent? Moses represents the law, does he not? God gave Israel the law through Moses on top of Mount Sinai. He gave them the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the ceremonial law, how to worship God. He gave them the civil law, how to live, how to regulate life with one another. He gave the law by Moses and by 10,000 angels that he used on that occasion. How about Elijah? Elijah is certainly a great prophet of God. Love to read about Elijah's life. Love to read over there in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19 how God used him to perform such great miracles. Uh, Elijah's known as a man who, who's an example of, uh, of a righteous man. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He prayed he wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Prayed he wouldn't rain. It rained. We find him calling on God and God sending fire down from heaven to consume a book, an offering there in that, uh, uh, you know, in that. Um, uh, contest, so to speak, with the false prophets. We find Elijah performed one miracle right after another. God, of course, working through Elijah. Elijah was a powerful man. Elijah represents the prophets. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter uh, 16, verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ said, for the law, law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached, and every man presseth into it. The law and the prophets, symbolized by Moses and Elijah here. Now, Christ 
is going to be transfigured here. The word transfigured, as you read in Matthew, means, uh, it comes from an English word, which means metamorphosis. Uh, a change comes about from the inside. It's like a, uh, you know, uh, when the cocoon is, is formed, and what comes out of that? What comes out of that? A beautiful butterfly, does it not? A beautiful butterfly. It, isn't, isn't that unbelievable how that happens in nature? Uh, how anybody can just view something like that and still believe in evolution is beyond me. When you, we can read that and so many other things, we've given examples here this morning of the things of nature. Uh, it's incredible uh, to know how these things uh, have been put into, you might say, uh, into effect by the, by the power of God. And so we find the Apostle Peter and James and John are all on this mountain with the Lord Jesus Christ and Moses and Elijah, and the conversation is about his decease. Now, these three men, James, we've already mentioned in Acts chapter 12, is the first of the 12 to die. He dies a martyr's death. Herod slays him. The Apostle John, his brother, lives to be an old man, but he goes through a lot of suffering. He winds up on the Isle of Patmos, uh, in exile there on the Isle of Patmos. As far as we know, he died a natural death, the only one of the 12 that did. And then the Apostle Peter's death is not uh, given to us in the Scripture, but according to what the Lord told the Apostle Peter, when he would live to be an old man, he would stretch forth his hands, another man would gird him and take him where he would as not. Most people believe he's talking about the crucifixion of the Apostle Peter that history tells as he suffered at the hands of Nero. Again, that's history and not necessarily Bible. These three men need to understand something about suffering and something about death. The scripture teaches us before there can be a crown, there must be the cross. Cross first, crown second. Sufferings first, glory second. What did the Lord tell those two walking the road to Emmaus? After his resurrection, he's walking that road, he joins himself up with them, he's listening to them talk, and then the Lord begins to speak to them. What does he say? He says, O fools and slow of heart to believe, ought not Christ who has suffered and to enter into his glory. Sufferings follow the glory. Romans 8.18, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Sufferings now, glory later. Okay? Well, the Lord was going to do a lot of sufferings, but I'm going to tell you after that, he was going to enter into his glory. This is the only time in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ where he revealed the fullness of his glory during his earthly life here. This is the only time. So he's on this mountain. He's transfigured before them. They're talking about his decease. They're talking about his exodus. And uh, the word, you know, it's interesting. The second book of the Bible is called what? Exodus, right? And it's called Exodus because the children of Israel experienced an exodus out of the land of Egypt by the power of God. Do you know the word exodus is not in the Bible? It's the name of the second book of the Bible. The word exodus is not in the Bible. But the word decease is. And they were talking about his decease, which in the Greek means exodus. And Peter speaks about his decease, which means Exodus. And so when I look at the word or the subject of an exodus, I see three major um, times that exodus would apply. First of all, again, is the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. So what do we learn by that? God used a man by the name of Moses to go down to the land of Egypt to bring his people out of there. He brings them out totally and completely, leaves none behind, does not lose one. 
It was well over a million people in the land of Egypt among the Israelites at that time. And he brings over a million people out of Egypt across the Red Sea, dry shot to the other side, does not lose a one. That's a mighty exodus, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ didn't view his death certainly as no defeat. It was a victory. He viewed his death as an exodus, which simply means that he has provided a deliverance for the entire family of God from the bondage of sin. God brought his people, the nation of Israel, out of the land of Egypt from the bondage of the Egyptians, from the bondage of darkness, from the bondage of being servants, from the bondage of being slaves, from the bondage of the oppression of Pharaoh. God brought them all out of there without the loss of one. He totally, completely delivered them. The Lord Jesus Christ came to deliver us. He came to deliver us to so great a death. The Lord Jesus Christ's death, he's being spoken of here, his decease, that he would accomplish. He would accomplish something in his death. He wouldn't die a futile death. He wouldn't die an ordinary death. The Lord Jesus Christ had power to lay down his life. He had power to take it up again. He laid down his life on Calvary. He saw his death as providing an exodus for his entire family, his children, his people, those whom the Father gave to him, he's provided you an exodus out of this world in which we live right here. I like the, I like the story of Elder Pat Bird, a minister years ago down in southeast Georgia, and he was in the hospital in his last days. And some of the preachers around there, they just highly esteemed him, always came to him for advice and for counsel, one thing and another. And so they came to him when he was on his hospital bed for counsel, came to him when he was on his hospital bed for advice, how to handle a certain situation. And they know he's, he's weak in body and everything else. You know what he told them? He says, brother, go figure it out for yourself. I'm about ready to get out of this mess. <laughs> he's about ready to take his exodus right out of this thing. And that's what the Apostle Peter is speaking about here. He says... Uh, he refers to putting off this tabernacle as experiencing an exodus. And so when the Lord's people pass this scene of life, they depart. They put off this tabernacle and they experience an exodus where they leave. They go home to be the Lord in glory. The Lord's people, the soul and spirit of God's people have an immediate release from the body. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? When you see a body that's all racked with pain and afflictions and arthritis and rheumatism and everything you can think of, I'm telling you, brother, when they take the last breath, they leave it all that behind. When they take the last breath, they'll never again experience a pain or sorrow, a heartache or a sad farewell. Leave it all behind. When you step out of this tabernacle, when you breathe your last breath, you leave this tabernacle behind right here, but not forgotten. You leave it behind, but not forgotten. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle James, and the Apostle John all were going to go through intense sufferings in their ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they need to understand something because they saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were eyewitnesses of His glory, of His power, and His coming. They saw all of that. That assured them one day that they likewise would experience the same thing. What Christ did, my friends, was for all the elect family of God. He says, I want you to remember these things. And he used this experience. Now, the word of God, listen to what he says after this. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. 
For until you do well that you take heed unto a light that shines in a dark place till the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. I love this language here. We have a more sure word, a prophecy. He's talking about the scripture. He's talking about the inspired, written word of God. He says this is more sure. You know what the Lord's church has had to guide them for 2,000 years? The inspired, preserved word of God. We haven't been guided for 2,000 years by word of mouth, have we? Wonder what we would believe if it came down to us by word of mouth. All you got to do is play that little game, you know, where you put six or seven people in a circle in a chair and quietly tell the first person something, and they quietly tell all the way around, and the last person says it's not even akin to what started off. And that's really what all these Bible perversions is all about. It really is. These are cunningly devised fables, men. Uh, you know, the King James translation is a word-for-word translation. These other translations are not word-for-word, there are words that are put in here to condition your mind to accept what they want you to believe about the text, just to put it real simply. And we're not guided by men's memories, are we? Wouldn't that be a sight? You know, memories are defective and also selective. <laughs> I find people remember what they want to remember, forget what they want to forget. <laughs> How convenient to have amnesia when you're called on the carpet. But I tell you, you want to remember something about somebody else's fault, oh, you can bring it up in a second. Our memories are very defective and very selective. How would we be if we were being guided by the church 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, based on the memories of men? Why, we'd be in bad shape, wouldn't we? See, men come and go. Men die. But what remains? The Word of God remains. That's why the Lord said in Matthew chapter 24, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, they shall never pass away. Never pass away. The word of God remains. Memories fade. Experiences fade. See, he's not saying that the word of God is more sure than his experience. His experience was accurate, my friends. But as you get older sometimes, uh, you know, things, uh, the details of things begin to kind of fade away, do they not? Or you may lose sight of some of the details about something you could have, you know, been able to tell in times past very clearly and very accurately. But the Word of God remains. I'm reading the same Word of God they read in 500 A.D. I'm reading the same Word of God they read in 1000 A.D. I'm reading the same Word of God they read in 1500 A.D. I'm reading the same Word of God that 1681, my friends, was translated uh, in England in the King James translation. I'm reading the same Word today that my father read and his father read and his father read. You know why? Because it hadn't changed. It's still here. It's still the same. Experiences sometimes are very subjective. The Word of God is very objective. It doesn't change. It doesn't bend. Uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, vacillate. It's, it's the same. It's just like God who gave it. You know, who is there? There's no variety, the shadow of turning. He said, but we have a sure, more sure word of prophecy. Notice this. Uh, where where you do well, you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn. When the day dawns, the darkness disappears, right? But I'm telling you, we live in a dark world. That's what he's talking about here. The darkness of this world in which we're living right here. This is a dark place. But the Word of God is a shining light. It's not only just a more sure word of prophecy. It's a shining word of prophecy. Everything about the Lord and the Lord's Word, my friends, is, is pictured as being light. 
We read in 1 John 1, 5 where it says, For God is light. He's light personified. He spoke light into this world. When he borns you the Spirit of God, he puts light on the inside of you that Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men. They might see your good works. It's a light uh, that we are to burn brightly. And the darker the, the world gets, the brighter the light can shine, right? The Lord Jesus Christ in Malachi 4.2 is referred to as the Son, S-U-N, capital S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, which arise with healing in our wings. In Revelation 22.16, he's spoken of as the bright and the morning star. Everything about him is light. John 8, 12, I'm the light of this world. And he that walketh after me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We have a more sure word of prophecy, and we need to take heed as into a, uh, take heed as a shining light in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in our hearts. The love that we should have for the Lord Jesus Christ should be so great and so powerful and so intense. Uh, that friends, it's like that star right, is right here in our hearts. And that star is guiding us just like it did the wise men when they brought them from where they were to where the Lord Jesus Christ was. We do well. We take heed unto this light shines in a dark place until the day dawn. The day dawn, I believe, pictures the second coming of Christ. When the Lord comes, I'm telling you this, darkness will disappear. When the Lord comes, it's going to be a brightness that will destroy the wicked and the evil of this world. But it'll be a wonderful time for the family of God. And Peter wanted God's people to remember these things. He didn't want you to forget. It's like Hebrews 2.1. Let us give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Listen, at any time, we should let them slip. He said, for the word first spoken by angels was steadfast, and it was. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of a reward. How should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? I'm telling you, the salvation of the saints of God is a great salvation, is it not? The greatest salvation Israel ever experienced, uh, you know, that is always called back to is their deliverance out of the land of Egypt. But how many times did God save them from the enemy? How many times did God uh, save them uh, when they were few in number and they were outnumbered and out-equipped and everything else? But God stepped in and saved them and delivered them. But I'm telling you, when Jesus Christ came in the world as to deliver his people from their sins, the greatest salvation ever known to mankind came forth when the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed his people from their sins by the shedding of his blood. How should we escape if we neglect so great salvation. Do not neglect this salvation that so great God loved you, my friends, by sending his son in this world to live for you and die for you and redeem you and one day come back and get you. Amen? Remember, 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 remember. <laughs> you got to work at remembering things. <laughs> it just doesn't happen, does it? Peter used this experience that he had to remind all of us that sufferings are part of this life. Okay? But glory is coming down the road. Men die, the word of God remains. Experiences fade, but the word of God remains. The world's getting darker. Word of God's getting brighter. Shining brighter and brighter and brighter.